Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Parents' involvement in their kids' lives is huge in this country. Just look at the responses in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and of course New Brunswick, where it began with um, the Premier, who's been a guest on this program on a number of occasions. Now, in Utah, the state of Utah, legislation likely will pass the state legislature, as I understand, within the next week plus, and it will require children under 18 to receive parental consent in order to log on to websites like Facebook and Tumblr or Reddit and other online services. Our guest has spoken with legislators in two dozen other U.S. states interested in similar legislation and not unlike the Protecting Young Persons from Exposure to Pornography Act under consideration in this country. That's Senate legislation. More on that is to come, of course, which would require a user to verify his or her age before being able to access pornography websites. Jordan Tischer is uh, the Utah State Representative who has been very much involved in this particular legislative effort. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mr. Tischer, thank you very much for the time. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Roy. Explain the legislation, please, to us, and, and why now? Yeah, well, this has been a two-year effort that we've worked on in the state of Utah and really seen a harm that's happening with minors in their unchecked use of social media and the social or the uh, the mental health issues that's been caused by it. And so we, we worked really hard this last year to put together some initial legislation, and we've been tweaking it. And, and uh, just yesterday, it passed out of the uh, House and Senate in Utah, and we'll be going to the governor's desk to, uh, to be signed. And we really feel like this legislation is going to help stem the tide of those mental health problems that we're seeing in our state. We had a, 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 young, a young man, uh, thir- I think 13 or 14 years of age last year, in British Columbia who had been exploited. They call it sexploitation online, and he committed suicide. And I keep thinking when kids harm themselves because of what's happened to them online, how they have been bullied and, and blackmailed. These are kids who don't have any life experience, or not much of it. I keep thinking every time, Mr. Tisha, that we're going to do something about this. We will have to find a way to protect kids. I'm not sure of the best way to do it. So how would this legislation, in fact, work? What, how, do, how, does it, how do parents get involved in the kids' lives in the Utah law? Yeah, so, so we have two, two bills that we worked on. The first one really imposes restrictions on minors using social media and giving parents and tools parents tools to be able to help uh, engage with their children's accounts. So it makes tech companies use an age assurance process so they can segregate between adult accounts and minor accounts. It disables search engine indexing for minor accounts. It uh, makes default privacy settings for minors that would limit the direct messages, the visibility and sharing features to only the friends of those uh, children. It also disables features that lead to excessive use, like autoplay, push notifications, um, endless scrolling, and then it prevents companies from collecting and selling data tied to minors' accounts. So that's one bill. The other bill that uh, has passed really is a way for parents to hold these companies accountable for when they allow minors on the site 
and it's caused mental health issues. So it essentially says that if you're a social media company that uses curated algorithms and what we're calling engagement-driven design features, those things like I mentioned before, the autoplay and uh, endless scrolling, et cetera, uh, and that minor on the site has, has developed mental health issues, then they would have a private right of action to be able to sue the social media companies for those damages. But we also presented a wide safe harbor for the social media companies that said, if you'll do four things, if you'll limit the time that minors can be on the platform to under three hours, if you limit them at night from 1030 to 630 a.m. that they can't get on the platform, if you get their parents' permission, similar to a waiver, knowing that there's, there's potential harm on this side, if they were going to go to a, a trampoline park or something else, they'd have to have a parent sign. And then lastly, if they'll disable those engagement-driven design features, then the presumption flips and the social media companies uh, have a presumption if they were to be sued for the harms that a minor had on their site. So how has this legislation been accepted in the state of Utah? I know you had to amend the original bill, but in in a broad perspective, including parents, how's the legislation been accepted? I think really well. And in fact, the reason we brought the legislation in the first place, first place was because there were parents that came to us and said, I'm doing everything I possibly can to try to protect my kids online. And it's just not enough. These algorithms are just too powerful. Kids can find ways around the system, et cetera. And it's causing real harm. We've also had a, a really strong uh, media campaign over the last year. If you drive in Utah, there's billboards around warning parents of the dangers of social media. We've had commercials on TV and on radio helping them understand the harm of social media. And, and I think especially this year compared to last year when we were the first state uh, in the United States to really pursue regulation in this space, I, I think the state has come along. They see the problem and they want to find a solution. And this is for children under 18, right? Correct. So you've also had interest from other states in the U.S. and a significant number, which leads me to ask you this question, because it's something we've talked about here. And is it your experience or your feeling that parents are being intentionally marginalized, even vilified, um, and, and their input into their children's lives is being not so gradually reduced? That's a good question, and, and it's a question, a similar question we get all the time is, well, isn't this just the parents that should be in charge of this? Can't they just do this on their own? Why does the government need to be involved in this? And, and again, like I said before, this came out of parents coming to us saying they're doing all that they can. Mm-hmm. And in the United States and Canada in the last year, these social media companies made $11 billion off of minors. There's wow. a lot of incentive for them to be able to... Uh, find ways to get these minors addicted to their platforms, even when you have good parents doing what they're supposed to and trying to protect their kids. And so I I don't think this is a, uh, a silver bullet to the problems that we're seeing here. It's going to be a combined effort where the state comes in and provides guardrails as regulation. Um, But parents still need a very strong active role in the lives of their kids to make sure that they're protected. And for one kid, an hour on a social media site is going to be too long. It's going to cause irreputable harm. Where for other minors, you know, maybe three hours is okay. But, but it's, it's learning and working together with parents and these, these minors with, you know, the regulations that we have, the social media companies, schools, everything together working to try to stem 
this real pandemic of, of mental health issues that we're seeing coming out of social media. What sites, um, I, I mentioned Facebook and Tumblr and Reddit earlier, but what sites um, are, are in fact, I'll use the word, targeted? Well, you know, it, it, I'll, I'll say we've worked really closely with Meta, you know, that has Facebook and Instagram. We've worked really closely with Google that has, you know, their sites like you know, YouTube and and uh, other Google Spaces. We worked closely with um, Snapchat, with uh, TikTok, um, with you know even even companies that don't really have a lot of minors like LinkedIn and, and others that want to make sure that they're not going to be violating the law in the way that they they move forward. And and you know something that was really interesting to me as I've been working closely with the social media companies is they recognize the harm that's there, and they've even told me in closed door me, closed door meetings that. They have ways that they could help protect kids in some ways, but they're afraid that if they implement those tools and other social media companies don't, that they'll just lose their market share. The, the, the teens will move off of their site and go to some other site. And so they're asking us to come in and establish that the, the, the ground rules, right, the, the, uh, the, the playing field. And if everyone's operating under the same rules, then they can do that. But they don't want to be the, the first one out that then loses uh, on the huge amount of capital that they could get out of these kids. And the bill just requires, or will require in a couple of days, the, the governor's signature. Correct. Yeah, the governor has um, 20 days to review all the legislation that we've passed in our session. And so I would expect uh, within the next week or two, he will sign those pieces of legislation. They don't actually go into effect until October 1st. So we have a delayed implementation to give time for these social media companies to implement uh, and comply with the regulations in the bill. In October of last year, the federal government removed the carbon tax from home heating oil for three years, a measure most beneficial to Atlantic Canadians. Well, good for them. Atlantic Canadians um, got really jammed by the carbon tax, and they let it be known to uh, Mr. Trudeau's government through polling that uh, his prospects of securing as many seats as he has in the past, pretty dim. And that's why Mr. Trudeau passed that carve-out of the federal carbon tax for home heating oil. But the prime minister refused to provide a similar carbon tax carve-out for Canadians heating their homes with natural gas or propane, used by the majority of residents in the prairie provinces. And one of his ministers, when asked about it, said, words to the effect, well, if you want that kind of deal from us, elect more liberals. So you can prepare yourself for initiatives and legislation from this government in the uh, year plus. They still have control of the parliament were their friends in the NDP, as long as the NDP liberal contract continues. You can expect all sorts of legislative efforts or policy efforts to try to persuade Canadians, yeah, you should elect us again. Okay. You know what the definition of insanity is? Right. I don't need to expand on that. Well, this week, Saskatchewan's minister responsible for provincial energy utility announced 
that the province will not remit the carbon levy on home heating fuels to Ottawa. Understanding this may lead to fines and potentially prison time for executives of Sask Energy. We've spoken with Premier Scott Moe about this in the past, and he's made it very clear what his objectives are for his province, and the federal government has made it very clear they don't give a damn. So push has, in fact, come to shove. Premier Scott Moe joins us. Premier, thanks for, thanks for joining us on the show today. Well, thanks so much, Roy, and it's uh, great to talk to you in the new year. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. If, before we do anything else, can I just get your thoughts, please, on the impact Brian Mulroney had on this country? Yeah, first, uh, you know, from Saskatchewan, uh, all of Saskatchewan, our, our, our thoughts are with uh, the Mulroney family. I've reached out to both Mark and, and Carolyn and expressed uh, our condolences. Uh, Brian Mulroney, uh, you know, was a great leader in this nation. Uh, he was a leader that uh, probably represented Canada, uh, both within the nation and, and outside. Uh, you know, some of the uh, relationships that he built throughout the U.S. and the European Union and around the world, I, I think that was a time when, uh, we could collectively across this nation be very proud of of what Canada brought uh, to the the world stage, and and Brian uh, very much represented Canada well, and you know we're uh, forever grateful for his leadership uh, from the province of Saskatchewan, and our our hearts are with the family, uh, as it is always family first. Our hearts are with the Mulroney family at a difficult time. Yeah, well said, Premier. One of the things Mr. Mulrooney did was try to build consensus. And even at the time that he introduced the goods and services tax, which was hugely unpopular, and Mr. Chrétien saying, we'll, what was it he said? We'll, we'll ban the tax or whatever the line was. Yeah, yeah. In, in 1993, essentially won him that election. But Mr. Mulrooney tried to build consensus, and he sent ministers, including his finance minister, Michael Wilson, around the country, Mr. Wilson was in this studio with me several times trying to explain to Canadians what the GST was. We know now, but at the time, there was a great deal of uncertainty. But Brian Mulrooney tried to get people to understand and build consensus. We don't see that at this time with this particular government and this particular prime minister. Now, you warned Mr. Chrétien and his deputy, Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister, that Saskatchewan would withhold carbon tax if no carve-out for natural gas were put in place for residents in your province, Premier. You did so on air with us. Did you, first of all, did you ever hear from Ottawa on your warnings to the Trudeau government? And not not really. And I, you know, I, I pine for the days of, uh, you know, where uh, Minister Wilson uh, and Brian, Brian, my Prime Minister of the day, uh, Mulroney's direction, uh, you know, went out and actually tried to find common ground uh, with the provinces uh, across this nation on, I would say, equally as challenging, maybe maybe even more challenging uh, topics like the, the the bringing in the GST versus what we see uh, this government uh, doing today. I, I, you know, <laughs> there is there is a conversation to be had here, and I would say a collaborative one. We all understand we need to reduce our emissions, uh, continue our march towards uh, uh, you know a lower carbon. Uh, um, lower carbon uh, Canada and a lower carbon world ultimately and we're finding our way in the industries in Saskatchewan are finding their way and they're some of the most sustainable industries in the world. Uh, what we said in this instance was we are going to make exactly the same decision as the federal government made when they uh, rightfully so lifted the carbon tax on home heating fuel which was largely going to impact those in Atlantic Canada 
um, we felt we were going to do the same for Saskatchewan residents to the degree that we could. Uh, so we did lift it on electric heating as well as natural gas. Uh, we unfortunately aren't able to help those that are utilizing propane, um, which includes many northern uh, and rural residents in the province as well. But we've lifted it on the, the areas where we can. Uh, same decision as the federal government made. Uh, they call, I think, their aspect of the decision, a, a, you know, a proper decision to lower costs for Canadians. And I think they referred to ours. I think Minister Wilkinson referred to us making the same decision as, as nothing short of anarchy. And so uh, this isn't consensus building. This isn't working with the provinces to a collaborative a solution of which I think we could find one. Uh, this is uh, the, quite the opposite of that today. And, uh, you know, quite a divisive approach, I would say. And I think any provinces would agree with that. It's really a negotiation by threat that we're getting from Ottawa these days. Would you agree? Well, that's the attempt. Um, it isn't working very well. And I would say that it's uh, <laughs> maybe showing up in the polls as well, which are worth exactly what you pay for them, which isn't very much. Um, but I would say that Canadians are noticing, and Canadians have had enough of, of uh, whether you call it negotiation by threat or just a lack of working together to find uh, that collaborative point. We, we actually all know where we need to, to, to find our way to. We need to lower our emissions in uh, the industries that are creating wealth, but not at the expense of, of, of that wealth. <laughs> and um, if, if you do so, uh, you'll find yourself like, you know, Germany and the European Union, where you uh, end up buying uh, those, those energy products from other places that are much dirtier often and maybe less stable. And uh, I would say the European Union and Germany in particular put themselves in a very vulnerable position in the last few years. We aren't going to do that in Saskatchewan, and I would suggest we shouldn't do it across Canada. We should... Uh, you know, plan, work together to lower our emissions, but keep our economy strong uh, and continue to produce some of the most sustainable products that you can find on Earth. There is a path forward. Uh, this government just seems to miss the mark time and time and time again on working with provinces to find that proper and appropriate path for Canadians. No question in your mind that the carve-out, the carbon tax carve-out for electric heating or electric home home heating was, was just... Uh, an effort to try to not lose too many seats in Atlantic Canada. Well, and I think their minister admitted to that. He said we should elect more liberals uh, in, right. in Saskatchewan. Well, I don't see that happening. Well, you better get at it. Yeah, I guess they could start campaigning. <laughs> How's it going to work, uh, uh, Premier, because there is legislation in place that that requires you to turn over the, as I understand anyway, there's legislation in place that requires Saskatchewan to turn over the carbon levy to Ottawa. Yeah, so what we did is we, uh, Saskatchewan Energy applied uh, to be dismissed as the uh, gas uh, deliverer in, in the province, and uh, the, the government has applied to be that deliverer. Both have been accepted by the federal government, um, so uh, the accountability now on who is responsible for submitting uh, this is the Minister of Crown Investment Corporation, that's Minister Duncan, I think he has alluded that he doesn't think that he's going to be going to carbon jail anytime soon. Um, but that, that is the, uh, the change that has taken place. That's a significant change so that there are, our energy company is indemnified. Uh, this is the decision of the minister whether or not to remit. Uh, the minister in Saskatchewan has made exactly the same decision as the prime minister of Canada in that we are not going to charge or remit uh, the carbon tax on home heating fuels to the to the extent that we can. And so it's the same decision as the federal government made, um, and we would expect uh, the, to be treated the same as Atlantic Canadians, as we are uh, all from one nation. 
and yet you're being described, you told us, as, as anarchists. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, 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 I don't know how that could be possible when, as I said, we're essentially emulating the very same decision. One must remember as well that the reason we have uh, largely natural gas uh, being utilized in Saskatchewan is because Saskatchewan people um, themselves and through a government program in the 1980s uh, switched from home heating fuel to natural gas. We paid for it ourselves. We didn't have a, gov- a federal government program in place to do that. Uh, we made that transition ourselves uh, in this province. And uh, so we, you know, we, 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 and we just feel quite fundamentally that uh, the decision the federal government made was unfair uh, to, at least uh, in our, in our, our concern as Saskatchewan residents. And so we did what we, we could uh, to, to ensure that it is fair. And, and listen, this doesn't change our, our, uh, very, uh, you know, foundational principle on the carbon tax. We think it should be removed uh, on everything for everyone. Uh, we've taken that battle right to the Supreme Court of Canada. It's pushing up inflation. Canadians are not getting more back than they receive uh, directly or indirectly from this silly tax. And quite frankly, it's not it's not reducing emissions neither. And so it needs to go away. Um, uh, it would be it would be good if this government would realize this that. Um, but if they don't, I'm sure the next will. I, I recall, and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask my producer across the glass, Tom, to find the uh, the clip of Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall when uh, he he asked the question of Mr. Trudeau, "What's the point of the of the carbon tax?" So try and find that, please, Tom, because Premier, you remember this extremely well. You were a minister in uh, Mr. Wall's. Saskatchewan government at the time, but it was the first um, premier's meeting with the prime minister on the on the carbon tax, and Mr. Trudeau explained it in such an eloquent manner that I I, I became confused. <laughs> and he said he said essentially we will collect the carbon tax from your farmers, and and then we'll we'll take the money and we will return it to you. And uh, Mr. Wall's question to the prime minister was, so you're going to collect the carbon tax and and then you're going to send it back to us to give it back to the farmers. So what's the point? It's still what's the point, isn't it? Absolutely. What's the point? And then the other question Premier Wallet asked at the time, I was Minister of Environment at that point in time, and I remember quite clear, was, has anyone done an economic analysis of what the economic impact of this tax is going to be to the industries that are employing people, creating wealth, and ultimately building our communities across this nation. Nobody had until the parliamentary budget officer had a look into it, and he said that Canadians directly and indirectly are not getting back as much money as they receive. That's true today. Uh, It is a harmful tax to uh, the growth of our economy. It's a harmful tax to families. It increases inflation, and it doesn't do what it was designed to do, which is reduce emissions. Premier, on uh, on the issue of uh, you being called an anarchist or your government being called anarchists by the federal government, and you're not going to turn over money, carbon tax money, to them because you're not collecting it. Um, but but there's also the, the, there's still that threat, is there not, in legislation of uh, uh, potential fines and imprisonment? We've talked, you and I've talked about that in the past. Is that still hanging over you? Uh, to, to some degree, um, but all of that now lands on on the minister and the minister's office, and and uh, to have one level of government make an equal and equitable decision, uh, the same as another level of government uh, has done, 
uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd welcome our, our day uh, to defend that uh, at some point in time. Uh, listen, this gets back to where we started with, uh, you know, a previous prime minister mm-hmm. that had sent uh, his minister, Michael Wilson, at the time out to work with, uh, work with provinces and work with partners on, on finding, uh, um, you know, finding those points of, of commonality and collaborating on finding what is the, you know, the best path forward. There's been none of this from the federal government, whether it be on the carbon tax, whether it be on uh, the multiple or multitude of uh, environmental programs, and really infringing a provincial jurisdiction, uh, you know, clean electricity standard, clean fuel standard, fertilizer caps, oil production caps, all of these things um, are squarely in the provincial jurisdiction, not the federal uh, jurisdiction, um, where the federal government is attempting to move uh, without uh, even as much as, as consulting, working with, or, or mentioning it to the provinces. And so it's, it's disappointing. It's divisive. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think, quite frankly, I think uh, many Canadians have, have, quite frankly, had enough of it and uh, are, are ready to, to move forward with, uh, you know, something different, maybe emulating uh, something more of what we had uh, many years ago, where we were proud on the global stage and we worked collaboratively together uh, to, uh, to, to make for a better nation. I have been at the center of some of those disagreements. Um, all of them I have been responsive to. It's not the province of Saskatchewan that has introduced uh, these these types of environmental policies that are infringing in the federal sphere. It's always the federal government that moves first, does not consult, tries to move into areas of provincial jurisdiction. And you see provinces like Saskatchewan and leaders like myself responding uh, to the initiatives of the federal government. That's disappointing. Uh, and it's, it's disappointing uh, time and time again. And that's what this is uh, when we are treating Saskatchewan families equitably by removing the carbon tax on their home heating, their home heating fuels. SNC Lablan is back in the news. 2018, it was the biggest story in this country. And then it drifted away because the Prime Minister moved Jody Wilson-Raybould, very capable Attorney General and Federal Justice Minister, Indigenous woman, out of his cabinet because she didn't play ball with him. Didn't play ball with him. Because what the Prime Minister wanted the Justice Minister to do and apply tremendous pressure on her during the SNC-Lavalin scandal, he wanted her to interfere with the federal prosecutors and move the federal prosecutors off a criminal charge against SNC-Lavalin and get them to go for a deferred um, charge. So no criminal charge, but a deferred prosecution agreement. And so now this week we found out, Canadians found out, you and me and everybody else who's got their antenna up, found out that the Parliamentary Ethics Committee heard the RCMP never tried to interview Justin Trudeau as part of the SNC-Lavalin scandal probe. They interviewed Jody Wilson-Raybould, but they never got around to interviewing the Prime Minister. Now, you have to ask yourself, why the National Police Force, whose responsibility it was, at the time, to investigate obstruction of justice and intimidation of a justice system participant 
Why didn't they go and investigate and question Justin Trudeau? Oh, and Mr. Trudeau's personally selected ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, did find Mr. Trudeau guilty of violating ethics, the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest Act and the Ethics Code, by interfering with Jody Wilson-Raybould. So the privacy commissioner says, yeah, uh uh-huh, you're guilty of an ethics violation. The RCMP never questioned him. And again, their mandate was to investigate obstruction of justice and intimidation of a justice system participant. Starting to ask questions, eh? I mean, this is starting to get really important again. And when Jody Wilson-Raybould wanted to talk to Canadians and share the full story, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet, particularly the Prime Minister, blocked the former Attorney General. He moved into Veterans Affairs, and then he moved her right out the door. Why did he do that? Cabinet confidence, they said. Really? Don't think so. Democracy Watch and Duff Conacher, co-founder, continues to demand the RCMP commissioner and a key RCMP officer reveal why it performed a, quote, weak lapdog, end quote, Trudeau cabinet SNC-Lavalin investigation, and why the RCMP is still hiding 2,200-plus pages of investigation records Democracy Watch says is in violation of the Access to Information Act. As well, why the RCMP's National Command, quote, rolled over and didn't prosecute anyone. Duff Conacher joins us on the Roy Green Show. Duff, I had a feeling this one was coming back and it's back. It is, and it will be back again when we finally get the 2,200 pages of documents that the RCMP is still illegally hiding. And we requested those documents in July of 2022. Here we are in March 2024, and they're still delaying uh, releasing those full investigation records. I mean, it's just ridiculous violation. You're supposed to be releasing records within 30 days. They can take a bit longer if they need to review them to see whether there's any personal information or things like that that has to be kept secret. But, I mean, we're talking almost two years now, and they're still hiding the docs. Why? So we're, we'll be chasing after those, and when those come out, I, I think it will prompt more hearings. Uh, the, you, the House Committee questioned the current RCMP commissioner, who was deputy commissioner during the time of the scandal. But where, why haven't they called the commissioner at the time, Brenda Lucky? And asked her because she was the ultimate decision maker. And so she needs to be called before the committee to answer the, the questions. So there's, there's often uh, um, partisan conflict at the parliamentary, uh, parliamentary committee level. And uh, we've seen it time and again with the, with the Trudeau government that liberal MPs who form the majority, often form the majority of the parliamentary committee presence, maybe in concert with allies like the NDP, occasionally the Bloc Quebecois, they, they stop investigations from moving forward. They just, they just grind them 
to a halt. And I've always been extremely suspicious when something should go to the people of Canada and a parliamentary committee by majority says, no, people can't know this. My, my, <laughs> my spidey senses say, oh, there's something seriously wrong here. This does not pass the smell test. You've been saying this for years. What, what makes you believe, even with what's happened this week, Duff, what makes you believe it's going to get beyond where it is now? Well, uh, at the committee hearing, the, um, one of the MPs uh, from the NDP, Matthew Green, said to the commissioner, okay, part of the questions here that are being raised is that as the commissioner testified, uh, at the hearing on Tuesday, the uh, the um, RCMP's investigation was largely over in March 2021, but they didn't make the final decision not to prosecute anyone and to close the investigation until January 2023, almost two years. What happened during those two years? Mm-hmm. Now, Democracy Watch requested all of those documents, all the investigation records concerning um, the investigation, but the commissioner said there's more and committed uh, to disclose to the committee all of the internal emails showing what happened. The investigation report is produced by the lead investigating officer in March 2021. Between March 2021 and January 2023, what happened with that report? What were people saying about it from the commissioner on down? Commissioner Brendan Lucky at the time on down. Did they talk to anyone in any in the Trudeau cabinet about this report? What did they do with it? What were the communications with Crown lawyers, the prosecutors? And that the commissioner, the current commissioner, committed to disclosing all of that information to the committee. And I think that's going to lead to the the commissioner at the time, Brenda Lucky, being called. Because she'd be the only one to be able to answer, why did you sit on this investigation report for a year and a half through a federal election in the fall of 2021 and not do anything about it until January 2023? Um, What reason did they give? Because I know the commissioner or the uh, sergeant who was there, they did speak about, as I understand it anyway, they did at the committee level of the ethics committee talk about uh, why they didn't interview uh, Mr. Trudeau? They had some some really uh, weak argument. What was the argument? The argument was that they didn't have cause to interview. <laughs> they didn't have cause. <laughs> well, they had clear cause. I mean, he is the oh, person who the ethics commissioner found directed the pressure on the attorney general. In fact, the ethics commissioner ruled that only Prime Minister Trudeau is guilty pressuring the attorney general. None of the others under him are because they were just following his directions and he had the authority to order them what to do uh, to pressure the attorney general. And so the, uh, um, the ethics commissioner found that and said, really, it's all on Trudeau. He was the one who was directing the pressure. And, and this was Trudeau's ethics commissioner. This was Trudeau's choice for ethics yeah, commissioner. And, and picked in secret. Uh, he handpicked this guy, and even this guy on this case didn't roll over. He rolled over on other cases like We Charity. But in this one, he found Trudeau guilty of violating the federal ethics law and said he was the one directing everyone else, so he's the only one that should be found guilty. And the RCMP looks at that and says, oh, no reason to interview him. 
we'll just accept, like they accepted for everyone else on the government side, we'll accept everything that they've said publicly. And of course, everything that they said was, we didn't do anything wrong. What people should remember, a lot of people probably forgot this, Trudeau actually lied seven times saying there was no pressure. He said it seven different ways. Each one of them was a lie. And then he finally, months after, uh, when the Ethics Commissioner's report came out in the August of 2019, Trudeau finally said, yes, there was pressure, but it was allowed. It was justifiable pressure that's allowed under the system. Okay. But he had lied seven times before that. Duff, just, there, there was no pressure, and that was reason enough to interview him. I listened to Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony at the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. And I wondered why the RCMP tasked to investigate obstruction of justice and intimidation of a justice system participant wouldn't find it necessary to speak to the Prime Minister of Canada when the Justice Minister and Attorney General made this accusation. For a period of approximately four months between September and December of 2018, I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada in an inappropriate effort to secure a deferred prosecution agreement with SNC-Lavalin. These events involved 11 people, excluding myself and my political staff, from the Prime Minister's office, the Privy Council office, and the office of the Minister of Finance. This included in-person conversations, telephone calls, emails, and text messages. There were approximately 10 phone calls and 10 meetings specifically about SNC, and I and or my staff were a part of these meetings. Within these conversations, there were expressed statements regarding the necessity of interference in the SNC-Lavalin matter, the potential of consequences, and veiled threats if a DPA was not made available to SNC. These conversations culminated in December the 19th of 2018 with a conversation I had with the Clerk of the Privy Council, a conversation that I will provide some significant detail on. A few weeks later, on January the 7th, 2019, I was informed by the Prime Minister that I was being shuffled out of the role of Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. So, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Attorney General, Federal Justice Minister, testifying at Parliament. The RCMP was to investigate obstruction of justice and intimidation of a justice system participant, but they did not investigate it, did not question Prime Minister Trudeau. It's the Attorney General and the Justice Minister, direct minister directly accusing the Prime Minister of interference with the Prosecutorial Service of Canada. And the RCMP, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, the RCMP saw no reason to go and question the Prime Minister. It just boggles the mind, doesn't it? It really does. Um, one of the things they said is, well, Jody Wilson-Raybould, a member of the Trudeau Liberal Cabinet at the time, was asked by the, one of the committee members, did she think that obstruction of justice had occurred? And she said, what happened was wrong, 
but I don't think it was criminal. But she was a member of the Trudeau cabinet at the time, still trying to keep her cabinet seat. And the RCMP said to the committee, the ethics committee this past week, well, when she said that, we thought, oh, well, if she says there's nothing criminal to happen, then nothing criminal. Well, what about she just, what about what we just played back? I know. And, and also, the RCMP should not be taking directions from a liberal attorney general about whether a liberal prime minister has violated the law. They should be investigating themselves and making their own decision. So that was the only excuse they and, and Duff, if that was their argument, if that was their argument, the counter-argument is Jody Wilson-Raybould appearing before the the committee and saying what you just said. She said a lot more. I have 30, I have about 40 minutes of it. Yes. No, I, what can I say? Their answers were not justifiable. They rolled over like a negligently weak lapdog. And uh, they are going to turn over more documents to the committee. But... Really, it, it shows, I think, that we need uh, a full public inquiry to get at all the internal documents, um, everything, including the cabinet documents that the Trudeau cabinet has refused to disclose, refused to disclose to the RCMP, to the ethics commissioner. They're still hiding okay. documents that would really show what's going on, and that's why we need a public inquiry Duff, to get to the bottom. Duff, we have a lot more to talk about. We'll do it again. Thanks so much for the time today, as always. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.